Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend Chabruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachat Yavamot, DAP Sadi, page 90. We are really starting to get into the last third of this Masachat. And today's DAP is actually, it, it's a dense DAP. And essentially what this DAP is trying to do is yesterday, and you had talked about this premise, you know, can rabbinic law sort of uproot, in a way, a biblical law? Can a derabanan uproot a deraisa? And so what appears here, particularly on Amid Aleph and going through to Amid Bet, is a series of different halachot where maybe one could argue, but sometimes we counter-argue it, that this would be an example where a derabanan seems to uproot or contradict a deraisa. Uh, there's one of those that I just want to discuss, and it's found on Amid Bet. And it says the following, Toshma, Vitlu, Mivutal. So it says, come in here, Ren. It's very short, right? It says, nullify it. <laughs> it is nullified. Okay, so what's this case? What is this talking about? So the Chachamim made it prohibited that if a man, if a husband sends his wife a get, um, that if he wants to cancel it, like till she has actually received that get, he would have to do it in front of the, he is not allowed to do it in front of a baiting without her knowing about it. Because let's say he gave the get to a shaliach. The shaliach is on his way to give it to the wife. He nullifies that get in front of the baiting, but the shaliach never finds out. And then the shaliach gives the get to the wife. The wife thinks she is a good get and she goes ahead and marries somebody. And then finds out later, hey, she shouldn't have gotten married because she actually, the husband sort of, revoked getting that get. And so the Chachamim basically said, that's why you're not allowed to do it. However, this Brisa comes and says that according to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, right, it's Debray Rabbi, if it is nullified, we still consider it nullified. Like even if he did go ahead and do this and didn't do it the proper way, it's still considered to be nullified. Rabbi Shom ben Gamliel mer, eno yachol lo levatlo. So Rabbi, Rabbi Shom ben Gamliel says, he cannot nullify it or add to it, right? In other words, he also can't write a get that has some sort of stipulation in it or condition in it, right? Um, uh, because if he can, if he has the ability himself to just cancel a bill of divorce, what good is the power of the court, right? In other words, it, like it gives too much power almost to the person who gave the get, right? We have to allow that the baiting has some sort of power and can't just say like, oh, you can write a get, then you can say the get isn't good or you can put whatever text you want into the get. We just can't, we can't exactly allow that. And so now the Gemara is going to explain this a little more. Right, and here, this case, right, that from the way that get is set up, he could really nullify that get, right? Umishu makoach beitin. But because of this principle of makoach beitin, kasharina and la'alma, right? With this issue, he's, we basically say he's not allowed to nullify it, which means that we basically permit a married woman to all men. In other words, that even if his intention was to nullify it, or he even did nullify it, we're not going to accept it. And that woman is actually going to be permitted to marry whoever she wants. And this seems to be an example of a dirabanan, a enactment of Chazal that seems to uproot a Raisa. Man de Mekadesh, right? And so the Gemara answers, this halacha actually is not, this particular halacha is not as, as a proof because as somebody who does Kedushin, right? 
Adate de Rabbanan Kedushin. He's doing Kedushin on authority of the rabbis, right? We know that marriage does not actually need Kedushin, right? You don't actually need to do you actually could do it just by having a sexual relationship with each other. We do Kedushin. So it's just, it's a little bit nicer that we do Kedushin. But Avkinuhu Rabbanan Kedushin. So the same way that sort of Kedushin is on the authority of the sages, so too the sages can nullify it as well. In other words, they have to have their consent to say that uh, the get would also have to be nullified because it's based on their, uh, it's based on on their uh, uh, on their you know on their power to say kedushin is a thing at all. Amrle Ravina lo Ravachi, so Ravina says Ravashi, right? Hifniach de Kaddish Bakaspa. This makes sense when you're doing the kedushin with uh, with money. Why? Because the, what the commentators explain is the chacham say the money's ownerless, and that's how they could be mevatel. They could nullify the kedushin. Kaddish bebia. My but what do we say if it was only with a sexual relationship, right? What, what, what does that mean? We don't really do it that way, right? So he says the sages equate his relations with a woman. They, they say that this is actually uh, like, it's basically like this is nudes. It's not nice. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it, this wouldn't be nice. In this situation, right, it's only through the power of the sages uh, that that this can take place at all. And when we say like, you know, Shavi Rabbanan Tobi, let's nude, somebody who basically does Kedushin that way, the Chacham basically saying, it's like not a nice way to do it. It's Biladzu. This isn't the way to do it. Now, I, I find this passage to be pretty remarkable. What they're trying to say is, is that it's almost like in a way they want to say, Kedushin is not their raisa, which they're right about, but it also gives like even more power to the rabbis, right? Because it's saying since Kedushin is de Rabbanan, the rabbis are the only ones who have a power to make any change or to say anything is valid about Kedushin. So on the one hand, they're tempering the idea that one cannot uproot a de raisa, right? The rabbis cannot uproot a de raisa. On the other hand, they're giving tremendous power over this concept of Kedushin that the rabbis came up with. So I, I don't, that's why I found this particular text to be, you know, in this particular proof to be very interesting because I don't know, in a way, like, yes, they're trying to say we don't uproot Deraisa, but this whole thing that it's the, that the Kedushin is in the power of the Chachamim gives the rabbis tremendous, tremendous power here. And yet so often they bind their own hands, right? Meaning I feel like this question of what is rabbinic and what is under rabbinic auspices to the extent that it might even contradict Torah law, right? So we don't want it to contradict Torah law, but the rabbis are the ones who decide what contradicts Torah law and what doesn't, right? So we end up in this kind of like, I don't know, I'm sure there's some technical term for the for the logic or illogic of this kind of chasing your own tail kind of thing. Um I always find that interesting, right? The the pasuk, the mitzvah that we have in Sefer Devarim about listen to the rabbis, right? Whatever they tell you, don't go, don't divert from what the rabbis tell you. Yaminu smo, right? Don't go to the right or to the left. And there's obviously lots of interpretation on what that means. But at the end of the day, it's the rabbis telling you that that verse means to listen to the rabbis, which I don't mean that the implication is that it's self-serving. We could talk about that as well, but that's not what I think. That in great sincerity, 
the system is built to entail rabbinic understanding of the Doraita in order to establish the Doraita. And so then to say, but this is only rabbinic, it, it kind of is it's not the whole picture because the things that are Doraita are also established by the rabbis as being so, Doraita. I, look, I think the obvious point is you read this Gemara and you're like, okay, if Kedushin is totally in the powers of the rabbis, what does this mean about Aguna? Like, then shouldn't it be easy for them to nullify whatever they want to nullify? I mean, that's the question I, 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 I'm almost too scared to ask. Well, that's why I opened with, and yet then they tie their own hands, right? Yeah. Because that's exactly what happens, right? The the position of afkinu kidushin mine, the idea that the rabbis could themselves undo kidushin, untie it, because it's by virtue of the rabbinic authority that kidushin works at all, and then yet they back in the day they might have done hafka'at kidushin, but we no longer do hafka'at kidushin. This is one of the things that some people like want to pound rattle the cages about to say, you know you know, go rabbis, go do Hafgat Kiddushin. And the motivation to avoid it, I mean, there were decrees to say, we no longer do Hafgat Kiddushin. And yet it can be very difficult when you're looking at real life people who are suffering. All right. I, I, I This Gemara is bothering me, but let's move on. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about this stuff is that we have several different Tashmas, right? These cases that are brought to be examples or questions on exactly this. So I'm going to take another Tashma. And they're brief, right? Meaning each one is its own kind of self-contained little case. And they're not self-contained in that they're all talking about this question of rabbinic versus Torah level of law. But the cases otherwise do not really connect. Tashma. So Rebelezer ben Yaakov says that he heard, and this, this formulation is also interesting, right? Like he's not stating it as fact. He's telling us that he had heard that the reason that the court does not um, give lashes, I'm sorry, that the court does give lashes and also punish, right? Meaning not all of that is Doraita, um, because what happens when you don't have a Torah punishment, the rabbis then step in and we've got a level of thing called Makat Mardut, which is lashes. And I've said this before, the, they might hurt the same as Torah lashes being whipped, but it's a rabbinic requirement that they be imposed as opposed to the Torah requirement. Anyway, the Rebbe ben Yaakov's point is that he says he understands that the reason that there is such a thing as rabbinic corporal punishment is to prevent violation of the Torah law, meaning you make that punishment serious enough at the rabbinic level, then you have what they call here siag, siag la Torah. They make a fence around the Torah. This fence around the Torah is well known to us. Um, perhaps the best or at least most handy example for me is always the 18 minutes with regard to when Shabbat begins and also you know, they also add on a bit at the end to make sure that you don't actually violate Shabbat because you've got this 18-minute cushion, um, which sometimes people find themselves using or look look up at the time and say, oh my goodness, I'm in the 18 minutes. They have been protected from violating the Torah law by that siag, by that fence. So there's a story here of a, a particular event that happened when a, a certain somebody rode on a horse on Shabbat, that's Asur, that's prohibited, in the days of the Greeks, meaning that's who was in charge. And this act, meaning riding on the horse, was prohibited by rabbinic law. 
right? There's no thou shalt not ride on a horse on Yantif, on Shabbat. Slicha. I'm sorry, I didn't mean Yantif. Um, they bring him to the court and then they stoned him as a desecrator of Shabbat. Now, what does that mean? He broke Shabbat. He broke the Shabbat to such a degree that he's got a death sentence and it seems they carried it out. But one second, didn't we just say that riding on the horse was a desecration of a, of a rabbinic law, not a Torah law? Lo so the Gemara concludes here, they didn't do it because he fully deserved it. Because again, the, the violation, the riding on the horse would not have required stoning by Torah. But because the sha'ah, the time, the hour, the, the time of need required it. What does it mean? At this time in that era of when the Greeks were in charge, the position here is that the people were very lax in their observance of Shabbat. And to make it serious, to help people understand how serious the violation of Shabbat was in terms of the Torah prohibition, they gave much stronger teeth to the rabbinic prohibition or to the punishment of the rabbinic prohibition uh, to the extent, and this is the dramatic part, which of course can be somewhat bothersome, right? that they, to the extent that they stoned this man to death for violating, for violating a rabbinic law for the sake of making everybody kind of wake up and be more sincere or more careful anyway, out of sincerity was the issue, to make people be more careful in their Shabbat observance. So I think here, Danny, you can add this to your list of troubling Gemaras. No, because- this stuff is shocking to me. I mean, we have other Gemaras. We're going to see the very famous Gemara in Sanhedrin, uh, you know, that talks about, you know, uh, if there was ever more than one, you know, mitas shall beitin, if the beitin put anybody to death more than once in 70 years, it was considered to be a bloody beitin. And along comes this Kamar, and it was like, yep, we can do capital punishment when we need to make an example of something. I mean, I don't know. I think like the rabbinic, you know, in a way, the Gemara is trying to set it up to be like, how could we allow that a Dirabanan could uproot a Doraita? But yet, through the examples they're giving, they're really trying to fortify rabbinic power. Indeed, very much so. I've got another story here. It's not better. So there's another event where we have a certain person. And I, I think it's interesting that these are all like like there is one one person. There's no naming. There's no identifying. I don't know if that's, I, I mean, I'm certain that's intentional. I don't know if that's intentional because, uh, you know, to keep people from probing the story more, you know, you keep it a little more anonymous. It's harder to counter it or to argue it or to contest what was done. I don't know. Um, in any case, this um, certain person was, he slept with his wife under the fig tree, meaning in public. Uh, they, they whipped him. They flogged him. Now, he's sleeping with his wife. Technically, the violation here is, I would call it, a lack of tzniut, meaning it's not necessarily appropriate to be out in public and engage in your, ma- bring your marital bed out to the public square. But he, they also haven't violated any of the laws that you would think would get a flogging in, in terms of sexual impropriety. And the Gemara acknowledges this. So again, it's not prohibited from the Torah to sleep with your wife, for a man to sleep with his wife in the public square or wherever he chooses, right? But the 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 time required it, meaning to prevent, <coughs> excuse me, to prevent other people from 
engaging in promiscuity in the public square. So again, here we've got the idea that the Torah mitzvah, meaning that the that the rabbinic violation is going to uproot the Torah mitzvah to the extent that there's going to be um, to the extent that there's going to be um, a public corporal punishment. In this case, it's flogging. It's not putting him to death, which does alleviate my my concern about the previous case somewhat. Not not it's not great, but to say that you have to make an example of someone. I think we all kind of understand that it's never fair, but sometimes it might be the most um, of, you know, establishing the system of law or something like that. But putting somebody to death really does cross that line in a big way. I believe I don't think that's uh, really so debatable. Your Dana, I don't think you're going to debate me anyway on it. Um, and then here the question is, you know, again, why would they do that? The Gemara says, Migdar Milta Shani. Once you're trying to protect, when you're having to safeguard the law itself, then that's already different. Meaning you're not just talking about a Torah law versus a rabbinic law on an equal footing. You're trying to protect the entire system of observance to say that this whole value system, uh, for example, the keeping of Shabbat or the keeping of, I don't know, propriety or whatever, um, requires extreme measures to establish what that law is supposed to be. And then I think the real question is, you know, let's debate that. <laughs> does it require extreme measures? And if so, does this extreme measure, does it go too far? Is there something that could be done, you know, to a lesser degree? I would say that stoning the guy goes too far. Flogging the guy, we can debate. You know, that's my that's my straight up, you know, um, what do you call it? My intuitive sense. I'm not saying that nobody should ever be made an example of that's obviously the more fair position. But I understand that there were historic times when there was a concern by Chazal that Torah was going to be lost. The question is whether this is the way to preserve it. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, it, it's interesting to see what they wanted to do. So in other words, they're not going to uproot a Doraita, but they're so worried about any halacha being lost at all. They invest themselves with a tremendous amount of leeway to sort of shape how halacha is actually practiced. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.